It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 167, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. And before we get started today, I want to say how happy I am to be back and how grateful I am for all of the support and all of the love that everybody out there gave me during my illness and my ongoing recuperation. It means the world to me, and it's been the source of so much comfort and peace for me as I took the time to heal. I know that all of you farmers out there know just how hard it was to make the decision to take that first week off. And even while I was in the hospital and even harder to make the additional time that I needed to really get myself to the point where I can put out consistent content again. Thank you so much for your patience and your love and your support while I and those around me put me back together again. Love you all. My guests today, Genesis McKiernan Allen and Eli Robb, raise vegetables year-round at Full Hand Farm, 45 minutes northeast of Indianapolis. Going into year seven of their operation, Genesis and Eli have between four and five acres of produce production with half of their sales going to farmer's market and the other half going to restaurants in Indianapolis. Eli and Genesis dig into how they've managed a black rot infestation in their brassica crops as well as how they weathered an herbicide drift incident by marketing with honesty and integrity. And we take a deep look at the details of the winter production in their operation, including the highs and the lows of mobile tunnels, their design for caterpillar tunnels and how those fit into their rotation, and how four-season production has fit into their business and marketing plans. We also take an honest evaluation of starting a farm where the food scene was not fully developed and how that's worked for them, and we take a similarly honest look at starting a family on the farm and how they've made that work. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by Haas Tools. And Haas Tools is the complete solution for all your market farming tools and supplies. From wheel hose, precision seeders, heavy duty seed trays, drip irrigation, and organic pest control, they've got you covered. Get free shipping and outstanding customer service at HaasTools.com. And by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact LocalFoodMarketplace.com to learn more. Genesis McKernan Allen and Eli Robb, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having us. So glad you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Full Hand Farm. Where are you guys located? How much are you farming? And where are you guys selling your produce and how are you selling it? Sure. Um, yeah, we're in Indiana. We are about uh, 45 minutes northeast of downtown Indianapolis, um, right on a right on a county line. And we are pretty much serving Indianapolis uh, with our produce. That's where it's all going. Um, we grow about four, between four and five acres of vegetables, kind of when you count in all the double cropping and the rotations and things like that. And we do grow year round. Um, we're selling to restaurants and farmers markets. Those are our two avenues. It's about 50-50 split between those two. We do a pretty high volume summer market, one at this point. Um, and then we also do a winter farmers market all year. So we're at market maybe, I don't know, I would say 45 to 48 weeks out of the year. Uh, we do take a few off just for our sanity. And then restaurant sales is about the other 50% of our revenue. And um, that's going to about, I don't know, 15 to 20 restaurants in Indianapolis uh, weekly from um, usually May until just after Christmas is how long we're offering restaurant deliveries. I think that covers the basis. So Indianapolis and, and Indiana in general, 
I don't tend to think of as local food hotspots. But when you're talking about selling to 20 restaurants, there's clearly some stuff going on there. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, I think Indianapolis is is in the last, I mean, really since we've been farming, but especially in the last five years, there's been a real, I, I would say, cultural renaissance in Indianapolis itself, as far as uh, people being really excited about the city, investing in the city, kind of um, arts and culture and all kinds of people putting in a, a lot of sort of creative energy into the city that, that didn't necessarily exist there in the 80s and 90s when we were growing up. And, and food is definitely a big part of that. Um, the chef scene in Indianapolis is pretty, pretty, pretty wonderful. It's a lot of young chefs who are really invested in the city and have just been able to really, I think, carve out a niche in Indianapolis as a as a place for really creative, um, not necessarily only fine dining, but just creative dining that is um, chef owned and operated. And it, yeah, it's just a really thriving, it's a really thriving food culture right now. And, and our farm really started right when the restaurant scene was really starting to take off. Um, so we feel pretty lucky that we moved back when we did and started our farm when we did, because I think we were really able to kind of rise with the culinary scene um, kind of along with it. And I think the growth of our farm has really... It's been in, in coordination with the, the growth of the of the restaurant scene in Indianapolis, which has been really fun. It's been really cool. When did you guys start farming? Um, so we're going into year seven of full hand farm on our own. Um, we did do two years of an apprenticeship on a really wonderful CSA farm in north central Iowa. Um, so our first year, so we, we were in Portland, Oregon before that for about eight years. And we moved to Iowa, I think in 2010. We did 2010 and 2011 as apprentices on a CSA farm in really rural north central Iowa. And then we started, we moved home to Indiana in 2012, well, late 2011, put up a couple hoop houses um, and started selling in 2012 in Indy. And we've been here ever since. Are you still on the same land that you started farming on? We are not. Um, so we actually came home to Indiana at the encouragement of, well, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was because Eli's dad had just bought about 10 acres just outside of the city and offered us, you know, an acre or two to get started on if we were really serious about doing our own thing. Um, and so when we moved back, that was kind of what we that was what we knew we had. We were like, okay, we have an acre or two, about 30 minutes outside of the city, and we know we can get started there and we'll kind of figure out the rest of the pieces later. And so we did that for two years. So 2012 and 2013, we were farming one acre the first year, two acres the second year on Eli's dad's property. And then it was in that 2013 year that we found our current property via Craigslist of all places. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a bizarre story, but yeah. So we found our current place and leased it with an intent to purchase. And so then we, we moved to our current property and leased for, do you remember? I want to say two years. years basically until we got pregnant and we're like, Oh, guess we better buy this place or figure out how to hurry up and, and get this, get this property locked in. So then we started, I guess our first year at our current property was 2014. So we've been now on this ground, 14, 15, 16, 17. So this will be our fifth year on this ground in this. And we have purchased this property. We did buy this property with the help of an FSA beginning farmer, 50, 50 loan. You guys are farming four to five acres of vegetables. How much land do you guys actually own? We have about 25 acres here, just under. 
Um, it's a little rolling, which helped to make it affordable. And so really there's maybe maybe seven acres flat tillable that's opened up and we like to try and set aside at least a third of that to rest. We did actually just take over a neighbor's uh, five acre cornfield down the road. He's got five acres of kind of sandy bottomland right along a creek and um, he was wanting to get that out of corn and uh, so we took that over which will let us expand a little bit and allow us to uh, really open up our rotation. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that just really quickly to talk about the rotation because five years here, one of the things that we're learning, like, you know, beginning being a beginning farmer, I feel like never ends or it feels like it's never going to end <laughs> um, <laughs> because now that we've been on the same ground, you know, for five years, like pests and insects, you know, we're real and um disease. We're really, we got, we got hit with some disease a couple years ago. We got um, black rot um, of crucifers that like wiped out uh, a lot of our fall brassicas, which as you know, is almost, I mean, it's like 50% of the crops that we grow, especially in the fall. And so we weren't really interested in scaling our operation per se, but we were really interested in trying to open up some opportunity for rotation to figure out how to better manage disease and pests. When you say black rot, that's something that sticks around for quite some time in the soil, doesn't it? Yeah, they say three years. Three years. I mean, you need to have a clean field of three. Yeah. So it's basically as long as the residue is in the field that black rot can hang on to it and it spreads so quickly. So our goal now is to stay out of those fields that had any sign of black rot for three years, which is a tall order. Yeah. When you say stay out of those fields, are you talking about just staying out with brassicas or are you talking about staying out with tractors? Just staying out with uh, brassicas. Okay. And then, you know, you do, you did mention equipment and that is something the last few years that we've been, I've been really careful of, you know, when I go in those fields with any equipment, when I come out, there's a special spot at the far end of the farm where I pressure wash the equipment off and I have a backpack sprayer that I I have a bleach solution in and sanitize things before I move to other fields. What a pain in the ass. Yeah, Yeah, big time, (laughs) but more of a pain in the ass to not have a storage crop of cabbage. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. How did you guys diagnose the black rot? Like what was it that happened? And then what did you do for control that year? So it actually, it moved in on our spring brassicas and you know, we, we started noticing some symptoms and that's kind of like, you know, the season's crazy. Just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. Oh, wait, the cabbage is melting. And so then we sent off a sample to Purdue, our uh, university up here, and uh, they diagnosed it for us. Meanwhile, we had already put in our fall brassicas and that disease had moved around, whether it was the dog or the flea beetles or what moved it around. Or our boots. In, yeah, our, in our pant legs, it spreads really easily on water molecules. And so, I mean, I, I honestly think, I think our dog was the one that, you know, did the initial spreading around of she's just out there hunting around, you know, in and out of fields. She's a good farm dog keeping rabbits away. But I think, you know, going through those plants early in the morning when they're dewy and wet and then going to a new field, you know, when they're dewy and wet. And, and I'm pretty sure that's how it got spread so broadly, so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is we just didn't know what we were looking for. Right. Like this was, I think, year four for us, maybe that we got the that we got the black rot. And so there's so much other stuff going on. There's so much other stuff that we're trying to handle. Our son was maybe a year and a half that year. So we're learning how to juggle, you know, having a small child. I wasn't on the farm as much. We had employees. It's easy when those symptoms show up 
I think when you're early in your farming career and you haven't yet had a catastrophic event like that to just think, oh, it'll pull through or, oh, I don't really, I'm like too tired to look it up or find out until it was too late. And it really was a devastating, a devastating loss for us. But taught some good lessons too, right? I mean, now I think we're, that really launched us into sort of identifying um, disease issues, being better about scouting, building relationships with, uh, you know, the plant pathologist at Purdue and the vegetable specialist at Purdue and sort of building relationships with people that I can now ping a text message or an email to and say, hey, what does this look like? Should I be concerned, basically? When you say something like getting better at scouting, what does that actually look like? That's a good question, uh, which we're still getting better at. We're, you know, trying to implement, carve out a specific time in the week for a field walk, which actually ties into, we have a full-time year-round employee that's been with us for three years, three years I think. Yeah. Um, and just trying to tie her into the bigger picture and then just trying to pay attention to what we're seeing when we're out there harvesting, you know, and not kind of discounting it. Which led into, so last year, so we had black rat a couple years ago. There are good, I mean, we've had a lot of success farming. I feel like all of a sudden we're just like talking about the bad stuff, but um, it's sometimes that's what I, maybe you learn the most from or the most quickly. I think that's it, right? The most quickly. It's not necessarily yeah. the most fun, but boy, those lessons <laughs> right. tend to come fast and hard. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so part of that scouting, I would say that from the from the black rot this past year, 2017, um, we did end up having an incident where Eli was out on a Sunday doing a kind of doing a field walk, changing out some irrigation, checking stuff out. Started to notice some funny spots all over everything in our first maybe our, like an acre and a half, two acres of production up. Uh, it's on a road that's across the field from a um, or across the road from a conventional farm. And um, he kind of checked it out. It was really bizarre. There were spots on across crop families and everything from, you know, carrots that had just put their first true leaves on to, you know, the kale and chard that had been in for six weeks and was just getting ready to bunch. And turns out that we had been um, drifted. We had herbicide drift that had come across the road. Uh, from the conventional field across the way. But so we he did notice that really early and we were able to jump on that really quickly, get the state chemist called, you know, get somebody out very quickly to take samples and check it out and to start to move forward, right? Start to figure out like, okay, here's our problem. Instead of just wondering what's the problem, what's the problem? Why is this stuff? Why are we having failure to thrive? You know, being like, okay, this is it. Now, how do we, how do we move forward? What do we do now? Okay. So I mean, not to dwell on all of the bad stuff, black rot and, and, pet, and herbicide drift, but okay. So you discover that you've got herbicide drift. What next? What do you do about that? Um, you, you, you know, you make sure that the tequila bottle's relatively full. Um. Especially because I will jump in and say that our daughter was three weeks old when this happened. We had a three week old baby as well. So okay. keep that. I mean, nothing, nothing like, nothing like uh, early June, a three week old baby and drift. I can only, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I, you know, I, I, having done the three week old baby thing and although not in the middle of the summer, that's pretty, that's pretty hardcore. Mm, it's pretty um, talented. No, it's pretty talented is pretty what I'll <laughs> say. Anyway. Yeah. It, it, it's making my stomach twist up. Think about that. So, so, <laughs> what, so what did you do? You guys called the, you called the state. You said the state chemist. Yeah. So, I mean, first thing I did was, so we live in a, in a, uh, you know, corn and bean producing state. I think you, you know, you lived in Iowa for a long time, so you know how it is. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. That's kind of the culture, right? 
Right. And so first thing I did was I knew whose field it was. I knew the family or I knew the name of the people who own the field. You know, we've only been in the neighborhood for five years and I always say we don't go to church or the bar. So how do we meet anybody? Because we're just working all the time. <laughs> right. So I didn't have a relationship with these guys. So I Googled around, found found some phone numbers, called, left some messages and, uh, you know, no call back within 24 hours. I figured had to protect ourselves and called the state chemist, which is really the only recourse in this state. You call the state chemist. Um, they come out. They take samples sort of in a gradient back from the field where the uh, suspected drift came from. So they can for sure identify that the drift came from there, right? The, the, the samples will be higher, closer to the field. And, um, um, and then they also take samples. I think he took it off of a, a sycamore tree leaf a little ways back to find out um, kind of a scary term. Uh, oh, Acceptable atmospheric levels. Yeah, that's what it was. Acceptable <laughs> atmospheric levels. So apparently there's, you know, there's this, this stuff's just floating around everywhere. So yeah, so he came out, took samples and then told us, well, it could be, you know, six weeks before you hear anything from us. And, you know, six weeks is, you know, life or death in some of these crops. And so, you know, we uh, we sent samples out ourselves because this was this was our early spring block, all the radish and turnip and bunch greens and actually our garlic and onions. And it was a big, you know, it was a, it was a mixed bag up there that got drifted and uh, we didn't know what it was, if it was safe to consume or not. You know, so we shut restaurants off, you know, to kind of told them what happened and didn't harvest any of that stuff for market. Meanwhile, had sent it off to a lab. I think out in Oregon, uh, is really pricey. I mean, testing for this stuff is pricey. These, uh, chemical companies, uh, that produce these sprays, hold on to these, those compositions pretty tightly. And you have to have the compositions to be able to test for it anyway. So we sent out to test for a couple things to see, you know, if it was safe for consumption and it ended up coming, coming back safe for consumption, but well above, um, organic standards. And so, which we are not certified organic. And so then we had a real moral dilemma, right? We are organic practices. We are a sustainable farm. You know, we don't, we're, but we're not certified. And so if we were certified, it would have been like cut and dry. Like, no, we can't sell any of these crops, but we're not certified. <laughs> so, what do you do? oh man, we had heartache about it for weeks. Um, and what we ended up deciding to do was to just fully disclose it. You know, we were not, we were, I mean, yeah, we were, we were below the EPA standards for consumption, but we were above, you know, we were about midway through, you know, but above the organic standards for consumption. And so we ended up deciding to just fully disclose. I put it on my Instagram. We put it on my, our Facebook page. We printed off big signs and took them to market that showed a graph actually of EPA standard for consumption, organic standard for consumption, and then the bar in the middle that showed the level of contamination that was on our crops. And we fully outlined what crops were affected at our stand and we posted it at our stand um, and kind of let people make the choice for themselves as far as if they were comfortable buying that, because you just don't know, you know, if people are having health issues, you know, they might be needing to be really, really strict about what contaminants that we were dealing with. But some people, maybe it's just like, oh, it's just a preference. And so they are willing to that, you know, they figure they're getting it other places. So we just, we just opted for full disclosure um, and, and decided to just let our customers decide for themselves. 
what kind of an impact did that have on sales? I mean, I, I'm thinking about my experience at Farmer's Market in Rochester, Minnesota, where I would hear every week people walking through the Farmer's Market with 80 vendors saying, oh, everybody here is organic. And of course, there were mm-hmm. two of us that were certified organic at the sure. market. So, I mean, with with those kinds of of biases there, I mean, I'm sure that lots of people at the market have much higher pesticide residues on their product than you guys do and aren't advertising it. But mm-hmm. there's all those underlying assumptions that customers had. What kind of an impact did that have on your sales? You know, I, I don't think it had too much of a negative impact. I think I remember two customers saying, you know, thanks for disclosing that and uh, walking away. Mostly it was very positive feedback. Um, they really appreciated our kind of forthcomingness with it. And, uh, you know, and maybe it did kind of open some minds up to what you're talking about, how there is the assumption that maybe everybody at market is organic. Um, and that could put some uh, question in their mind about that. It didn't necessarily. So, yeah, I don't think it really had negative impacts of sales at market. I would actually say that I don't think it had negative impacts of sales at market because that there was, um, you know, herbicide residue on our crops. I think that it could have potentially had negative sales, though, because we lost our first planting of carrots. We lost our first planting of beets. You know, our our bunching greens struggled for the whole season. And so we missed some of that first to market market share that you that you strive for um, in the spring to kind of be, you know, early with the big piles of carrots and beets to set people's buying habits. So really, I, I don't think it had negative sales effects in the, like I said, in the in the concern for the pesticide. But I do think that we lost a market share in the season oh, as sure. far as our, you know, like our piles being quite a bit smaller. We really struggled to get, um, you know, healthy, vigorous crops, you know, replace the, the, the bunching greens and the onions, the yield loss on the onions and the garlic and the peppers and all that kind of stuff. I will say, you know, the silver lining of that, and this is like, you always want to have something positive to tell people at market too, right? Because you don't want to be like, oh, my life is so hard, even though your life is so hard or it feels so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, you tell people, hey, this is why we're a diverse farm. You know, this is why we don't grow only one thing. Like this is what, you know, we plant things every single week. You know, yes, this is a bummer, but, you know, we'll come through it and it's teaching us some lessons and we'll figure out how to how to bounce back and thanks for bearing with us. Did you guys make any changes or do anything differently as a result of the drift incident? Actually, when I noticed when I came home that Sunday and stopped by the front field, changed up some irrigation uh, in the back of my truck was about uh, 30 spruce trees to be planted as a windbreak (laughs) right there on (laughs) that road. Uh, You know, of course, yeah, 15 years too late, you know, so that's something um, for sure is getting that windbreak up as soon as possible because it's not like it's these guys maliciously are doing it you know it's how they've been raised it's how they know how to how to uh you know raise corn and beans that's how they've been taught and that's that's the only way they know as far as what else we've changed i'm not sure we should probably put some signs up of course you know my wife was right genesis was right when we moved in she wanted to put signs up and i thought oh you know let's not be the crazy hippies on a corner and put everybody off right up front but we probably should have you know i mean we're we're registered with a drift watch it's a website that uh, is supposed to facilitate communication between specialty crop producers and commodity crop crop producers so they kind of know so the applicators know where you are um but we didn't have we didn't have signs up i mean you know, not that it should matter, but 
but it does. I mean, the, you know, again, the reality is if you're, if you drift a little bit of herbicide on your neighbor's herbicide resistant corn crop, it doesn't really matter, you know? Sure. And so I think it, it, but it is such a hard line to walk between, between, you know, we're the new hippies on the block and everybody's expecting you to have naked Friday on the farm. And if you're, mm-hmm. and, and if you put up the signs, you know, you're just going to increase traffic on Fridays that way. But, <laughs> but yeah, you also, you know, there is a need to kind of, to, to say it too, you know, we're, we're here and please, yeah. you know, please be considerate of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. There is, there is. And I will just a couple more things on this drift thing. We can move on, but, uh, you know, one, one more thing that we did right after it happened, you know, called state chemists figured out about, you know, getting it identified, um, was start new transplants immediately reseed, you know, and just try and move forward. Um, we, this hadn't happened to us before, but it's fairly commonplace in this state, sadly enough. And so we had known some people that had happened to, and we know that, uh, you know, things can move slowly. And meanwhile, you know, the bills don't stop coming. And so we, you know, first thing you do is move forward, replant, reseed, um, get new transplants coming. Will you guys be thinking about becoming certified organic so that you have some sort of recourse in the future, some sort of official standing? Yeah, I don't know necessarily for that recourse. I guess I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, we have thought about it just as far as uh, as far as uh, market, sh- you know, marketing ourselves better and also just being counted. You know, I mean, we get that egg census every year. And if we're not certified, then we're not counted as organic. And so then our little number doesn't count when the USDA looks at the overall picture of uh, nationwide agriculture. So we've been talking about maybe feeling a little responsibility to that bigger picture to add that certification. Let's swing and talk about some successes yeah. now, because I think that'll be a lot more fun. Um, the, <laughs> you guys are doing four season production mm-hmm. on your farm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the systems that you're using to do that? So we have about uh, half an acre under plastic and let's see how many square foot. We, we do a lot of movable hoop houses. We actually, we started exclusively with movables. Um, we have now, we now have a permanent um, greenhouse and then another bigger permanent 30 by 96. But then we have four 20 by 50 movables and three 12 by a hundred um, cat tunnels that I made um, that we also move. That was the goal from be- the beginning, from starting our farm. We knew that we were going to be a four season. That was part of our business plan, kind of our strategy going into farming. Like when we decided that this is something that we wanted to do as our living, um, we knew from the very beginning that we were going to need, you know, that year round production and that year round income. And so we really started the farm, you know, as part of our kind of our starting tool set that we year one, we hit the ground with was two of these, uh, 20 by 48 movable tunnels. I mean, that was, it's, it's something that was from the very beginning was our goal. I just wanted to say that. And when you talk about movable tunnels, are these the ones that slide back and forth kind of on that, that uh, what I think of as the Elliot Coleman model? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. These ones are, they're kind of the cheapy models. They're not on tracks. They're just, uh, on skids on a two by two square tubing. And how do you guys have that rotation set up? Yeah, so we have three slots. Um, per tunnel. Yeah, for each hoop house and two moves a year. And so it's basically, you know, a summer crop and a winter crop. And, and a cover so then, crop. And a cover crop. So is then the that, third slot. 
Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah. So that third slot then rests for a year for us. Um, this ground that we're on, it was a horse farm for about 10 years before we got it. And so that's a big boost over just getting a cornfield. Um, but it was farmed corn and beans um, for decades um, before that. And it is kind of rolly. So a lot of the topsoil is, you know, down at the bottoms and we're farming the tops. <laughs> so the organic matter is low. And, you know, um, when you're starting to farm, the, you don't have a huge financial pool to pull from. So cover crop in that third slot for a year is kind of a, is a cheaper way to bump the organic matter. And it gives, and it stretches out our rotation, right? So tomato, I think it's five years before the same crop is back on the same slot. That's a nice. Oh, it's a big one. And I mean, we, we, we went that direction. Um, Genesis mentioned that we worked on a farm in Iowa for a couple years, North central Iowa. And so we were visiting farms in, you know, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, going to the Moses conference, talking to some older time growers, old um, growers who've been growing for a while in permanent houses and hearing about the problems that develop. That was kind of the, the impetus for just going movable from the start to try and forego running into those problems. That being said about the movable tunnels, um, so those are 20 by 48. They're single layer of plastic. We're limited on the crops that we can grow in those. So in the last couple of years, we have added bigger permanent houses. Um, actually, two of them, one that we're kind of splitting as a prop house, but then we are doing some deep winter production in it. It's our only heated house. Um, and then we get, we actually got two equip grants last year. Um, and so we put up one 30 by 96 with a double layer of poly. Uh, let's see, I guess last November and, and we need to put another one up this year. Um, so that being said, we're kind of in order to maximize our winter production, the, the movables are really great for the rotation in the summer and, you know, kind of keeping the soils flushed of salts and, um, you know, keeping a nice rotation in there. But they really don't afford us the kind of growing environment that we need for the crop variety to meet the demand of the of the deep winter uh, farmers market in our climate. And so we are kind of looking at a hybrid. So we are sort of using both styles of hoop houses now, um, the bigger double uh, poly inflated roof that to do our less cold hardy crops, lettuces, radishes, turnips, um, and the movable tunnels, which are great for, you know, the rotation, but also your more cold hardy crops, kale and spinach, et cetera. And when you talk about the production limitations of those movable high tunnels, that's really what you're talking about is the fact that it's a single layer tunnel, that they're smaller and therefore a little bit more susceptible to the cold. Exactly. How cold does it get? down around Indianapolis in a year. I mean, I know it's not, I mean, you talk about North central Iowa is pretty much the same <laughs> as South central Minnesota and mm -hmm. Indiana is quite a bit different than that, but how different? Indiana is kind of a long state. And so we have a lot, you know, the, the bottom half of the state is uh, touches Kentucky and the top half of the state touches Michigan. So we have a wide range within our state at our, I mean, I think we're a, I think they moved us to a six a, for a second, but I mean, I think we're back into a five um, zone here, five B, you know, this winter we got down, we saw a negative 14, negative 15, something like that for, a, uh, for our, for our lowest low that we saw, you know, but then the, you know, the climate's 
climate's doing weird things. Um, you yeah, know, that's little, not little. dependable. It's not dependable that we get down that low every winter. It seems like in our experience, it's sort of every three or four winters, we'll see those really extreme lows. And then in the in-between, it, it can be really mild. So it's a little bit of a gamble. It feels like it's a little bit of a gamble on what kind of weather we'll get. Hard to plan for. Yeah, you just plan for the worst, you know, and uh, when it doesn't come, then the, you know, the stuff thrives. With the mobile high tunnels, then tell me a little bit more about how the rotation actually goes throughout the course of a year. I guess we could start right now um, and then kind of come back around into winter. And, um, and right now being uh, about the third week of March. Sure. Just for yeah, the, yeah, right to now. benchmark that because we're not going to publish this tomorrow. So I just want to set gotcha. up for the listening yeah. audience. Yeah. Yeah. We're right at the end of the March, um, going into April. Um, you know, springtime is here ish right around the corner. Um, so when you bring crops through the winter, a lot of crops want to go to seed when it starts to warm up. Um, you get these big temperature fluctuations between your cool nights and the sun comes out during the day and warms up. So your, um, you know, your Asian greens are all going to bolt any turnips or anything that's brought out, you know, that's overwintered your kale start starts to bolt. Um, chard bolts a little later than the, than the brassicas do, but the collards are bolting. Um, and so you kind of look at where those crops are at, are they starting to stretch? And as soon as they start to stretch, we start ripping them out and, uh, replanting. Um, and so in that winter slot space, we actually get two crops out of that. We double crop that. Um, so we've been, you know, reseeding some cut greens, radishes, uh, early snap peas, um, first rounds of carrots and beets, um, are up right now with the uh, first true leaves. And as soon as those replants, those spring replants are up, the hoop house gets moved off of that slot. We pull it off and pull it on top of what will then be summer production and kind of like to have those moved a couple weeks before we want to plant. We have been doing some tarping the last few years, which is actually ex um, accelerating the time that we need between moving the hoop house and replanting or implanting the summer crop. But we move it on, um, close it up, hopefully get some sunny days to really warm it up, try and bring that soil temp up to those, you know, mid fifties that your summer crops uh, prefer. And then, uh, you know, get those summer crops in sometimes, sometimes late March, first, second week of April, kind of dependent on the weather. And then those, you know, we ride those summer crops all the way until uh, frost kills them off, which would be maybe mid-October, Meanwhile, we have the winter slot that would have a spring cover crop on it. And then that gets mowed off, worked in and stale bedded, you know, we'll make beds and then either do a shallow cultivation or flame them off and be ready to seed our winter crops in a timely fashion. I know that that can be kind of hard in a permanent hoop house deciding when to take the summer crops out in order to plant the winter crops. But with these movables, I can keep the summer crops going as long as I want and put my winter crops in late August, early September, um, and have those ready to go for that deep winter production. Right. Um, the other nice thing about having the movables is that I do like to let those winter crops get hardened off before I move the house on top of them. So they're out there in the wind I like to let them get a pretty heavy frost on them. I won't cover them 
because I know that there's a potential for a 14 below um, night in the in the winter. And when they spend their whole life protected, they never really get that hardened that that hardening off. And I feel like that really helps them thrive, or I guess maybe not thrive, but be able to take those cold temperatures. So once they've gotten that heavy frost, then I'll go ahead and move a hoop house on top of them. And a lot of times that ends up being early, you know, early November by the time we're making that move. And with a 20 by 50 house on two by two metal skids, how are you Mm -hmm. moving that from one space to the next? So I have a, I have a winch mounted on my truck. Um, and this time of year when I'm moving onto a slot that has no crop, uh, it's a lot easier. I have a I-beam, a metal I-beam that I strap across the front of it and, uh, two attachment points on that for a couple toe straps that kind of come into one pull point. So it's kind of triangulated there. So it's pulling each side evenly from one, one attachment point. Um, and those I can, I can move, I can move in a couple hours that way in the fall. It's a little more complicated because you're, you know, you're pulling on top of full size kale and, uh, you know, spinach that you've been harvesting off of. And, and so, um, on those skids there, I'll, uh, tie a rope off to each skid to each side of the hoop house. Um, and the rope runs up along the side of the slot that I'm pulling on and on each corner of the slot that I want to pull onto, I put in a T post. Well, I started with one and now I figured out two T posts, um, holds a lot better cause it's a fair amount of weight pulling on those. So I'll put in two T posts back to back and uh, tie those together. And then there's a pulley, attached on each corner and that rope comes in wraps around on those pulleys it's just one rope that is attached to each skid comes around on those pulleys and uh and then i attach up to that with the winch and can pull from one point so that way it's pulling on each side of the house equally that's the key keeping everything running straight that way exactly yeah, not yeah, not twisting. I mean, you could hook up a truck or a tractor to each side and pull it that way. Um, but that's kind of the way. That's that's the way I've come about it. That's a lot of this stuff has been developed for minimal labor <laughs> to do it. Um, that's you know that's something that I could do on my own. Were the mobile tunnels something that you guys had experience with before you started doing that on your own farm? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. Nope, not no. at all. Um, yeah. And that's something we've talked about is, you know, the farm that we worked on in Iowa was not a four season farm. It was a three season farm. And, uh, but us coming in, coming back, starting up the business, knowing that we didn't, um, that we just wanted to make a living off of it, knowing that we needed that year round income. Um, uh, we just had to, had to figure it out, you know, and there's a lot of information out there. I feel like even more so now, I mean, we spent, you know, five years, but figuring out, well, starting to figure out plant dates, you know, and then was it last year, all of a sudden I'm on Johnny's website and they have a, a nifty little calculator for putting in, um, your zip code and yeah, your zip code. And it spits out all these plant dates that lo and behold, mostly line up with what we trialed and aired. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, it, that's, uh, Right. That's that's like you guys were too early to the game. <laughs> sort of. I mean, I would argue that, you know, we've had a, a lot of resources that make it um, a lot easier for us than, um, you know, people twice our age. 
yeah, there is that. Mm. I'm not twice your age, but you know, just being a little <laughs> bit older. So I w- I'll add on to that really quickly, just going back to kind of um, Indianapolis and the developing food scene. And so partly we started the farm with the four season being a four season production, or having a four season production goal because of the income, the sustained income. But also we, when we were moving back there, there wasn't a winter farmer's market that had been going, I think at that point for two or three seasons. Um, and actually Eli's dad was involved um, with that as he was managing another farm um, and had been sort of helping to build that winter market. And he did really, really encourage us. He was like, Hey, there's this winter market. There's an established outlet you know, you guys should really, he, he did really encourage us to kind of um, pursue that four season um, production because there was a growing, a growing outlet um, for, to be able to move the, you know, move the produce that we were, that we were going to grow in the winter. And so now I think we've been at that market seven or eight years, that winter market. Do you feel like having the winter production has, has helped you to market your produce the rest of the year because you have that consistent presence? Yeah, I would say it does. Um, and we started out our summer market that we started with was kind of in a um, suburb of Indianapolis. And so the winter market was right downtown. And um, that was really only our only um, face to face interaction with customers in Indianapolis. At that point, you know, we were selling to restaurants. Maybe some people saw our names on the on menus here and there. Um, but that, um, that winter market really let us interact with the buyers there. There's a flagship market here and this, what Eli's talking about is we were pretty calculated. I think when we came back or when we were starting our farm in our trying to choose our outlets wisely. Um, so having the presence at the winter market was a goal because we knew that eventually we would want to apply for the kind of the flagship market that is in central Indianapolis. But when we first moved back, that's a high enough volume market that we were really nervous to try and apply to that market. We probably wouldn't have even gotten in if we had applied in our first year, but that was kind of our goal. And so we opted for our summer market. We kind of poked around and visited markets um, and, and chose to apply to a market, a smaller market, still fairly close to the city, but in a suburb, but a, but a smaller volume market to kind of cut our teeth um, and to get in and get going and and figure out our production strategy strategies, like get our succession plantings down. Um, I think we, when we started our farm, we knew enough to know that we didn't know very much. And so we are both fairly risk averse. Um, so farming is a funny, uh, you know, a funny career to be in for being fairly risk averse people. Um, but we really just wanted to, to kind of cut our teeth slowly and, um, start at that smaller market, develop our production techniques, um, before we moved into that flagship summer market or before we applied to. And so the winter market presence, I mean, we were going to winter market, Chris, with like $200 worth of stuff, but we were dogged. We were like, we are going every single week, even if it's 200 bucks worth of stuff. And I mean, we're going to sell out in 45 minutes or whatever, like we're going, like our faces are going to be there. And so I feel like we really did pound the pavement in that way um, in the beginning uh, with the long game of getting into this bigger high volume summer market um, to be able, once once we kind of cut our teeth and once we felt like we could meet the demand that we knew existed there. And it does. I mean, that customer base does carry over, you know, you end up with your hardcore farmer's market shoppers, um, you know. I mean, some of these people we see more than our, you know, more than our family. 
you know, more than our, than our, than our family that lives close by. I mean, we see them every week. So it does, it does help, you know, it carries, it carries over like you're saying. Now you said though, that you don't market that winter produce to your restaurant accounts. Yeah. I mean, it just, the supply gets low, right? I mean, we do, uh, we do pack the the coolers as full as we can in uh, the late fall with storage crops with your storage roots and, um, brassicas and then half an acre under plastic. It just doesn't meet the volume that both market and restaurants could take. And so we've so far have just stayed at market. We've tossed around the idea of cutting off market early and just continuing on with restaurants. Um, but we've kind of built, we kind of built our, winter plan our growing plan for the winter around what the market will eat and what people eat at the winter market. And so, you know, after seven years of planning, you got a pretty good grip on how much people are eating every week of what, which really lets you dial in your production. So there's, you know, almost zero waste, you know, that you're selling every bit of everything that you grow. Whereas the restaurants can be a little more volatile um, as to what they're taking every week. And it's also a lifestyle decision. I mean, I can remember our, the farm that we worked at in Iowa, you know, one of the sayings that I heard one of the farmers say was, you know, I don't want to build an empire. Like I probably could have built this vegetable empire, but I just don't want to. It's not, it's not what I want to do. And we've really, I mean, that's an ongoing conversation between Eli and myself as well is like, at what scale do we want to be at? Because I think to be able to meet those restaurants year round and meet that market year round, I mean, we would have to scale pretty seriously. And that, that means a lot of infrastructure changes. That would mean some equipment changes. More importantly, that would mean like employee, like having way more employees. And it's just not something that we are sure we have, have wanted to do, you know, it kind of protects our winter a little bit. I mean, we do go to market all year, but you know, it's just market and a lot of stuff is in storage and it it feels like it can be a little bit more, um, autopilot and it gives us just a smidgen of a rest time in the winter to not be, um, you know, having coolers packed with 50,000 pounds of storage crops and, you know, trying to, trying to, find windows through the winter to cut greens to meet two different delivery days. Um, So I think it's been a little bit of a conscious choice as well to just stay at market. We get a retail dollar. Like Eli said, we've, we've pretty well nailed down like what that market can eat and can plan, you know, plan our plan around that. Um, And it also, it protects, it protects our winter a little bit. I think it is one of the real hardest things about, Winter production is balancing that production Mm -hmm. because the demand, I mean, if you start servicing wholesale accounts, especially, but even at farmer's market, the demand can just so far outstrip your production and it just, and it's a lot harder to scale up the winter production than it is the summer production, which Mm -hmm. I suppose probably gives you guys kind of a niche too. Are there a lot of people doing winter production in your area? Not a whole lot. No. Um, not the full year and not at market. Right. Um, we have pretty stiff competition at that market. Actually, that that winter market is actually <laughs> the first, like the November and December markets um, are actually some of our lowest grossing markets of the whole year because the competition, because we kind of funnel all of the growers into this one market, right? There's like a, f- a few different summer markets, but then there's this one winter market. And so lots of people still have stuff in November and December. And so lots of people apply to come to the market. And so we actually do see a pretty big sales drop in November and December at that market. But we know 
because we've been there for enough years now that if we just hang on, I mean, we see a skyrocket in January, February and March, basically until we sell out of stuff um, because there's not I mean, we're 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 like there's not much competition. Um, so we definitely have kind of built that is a niche that we have that we have filled is kind of like what I think of as the deep winter production that January, January, February and March. And it depends on the year. I mean, this year we had a really, really hard cold spat um, that uh, that can be hard, hard to manage in in unheated tunnels. I mean, you know, you got to be um, you got to be ready to uncover stuff on sunny days, you know, and recover everything and um, to be able to make it through those real cold, cold times. And I think some people um, just didn't make it through those cold, those cold, uh, that cold snap. All right. With that, I think we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Genesis and Eli from Full Hand Farm in Noblesville, Indiana. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. In the wild, where our crop plants' ancestors evolved their microbial partnerships, plants are provided with nutrients from the soil through the work of partner microbes that work with the plants. Wide-ranging roots reach an abundant supply of nutrients and microbes, even in less-than-ideal conditions. And now you've gone and stuck that seed in a little container, and it has to get everything that it needs right there in a few cubic centimeters of soil. By providing compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients, Vermont Compost ensures that your plants have what they need consistently. If they're not in the ground, your plants deserve to be in Vermont Compost potting soils. And you deserve the peace of mind of knowing that they are reaching their full potential while they're there. Makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. VermontCompost.com Support for the podcast is also brought to you by Haas Tools. Haas Tools is the complete solution for all of your market farming tools and supplies. Keep rows weed-free with their time-tested American-made wheel hose and the best wheel hoe attachments. Their precision seeders have a proven seed plate design for planting a wide variety of seeds. And you can grow the best transplants with their heavy-duty PropTech seed trays and keep your crops healthy with their drip irrigation and fertilizer injection systems. Haas also provides a, a comprehensive selection of conventional and OMRI-certified pest control products at the most affordable prices. Free shipping and outstanding customer service. Shop online or request a free catalog at HaasTools.com. And we're back with Genesis and Eli from Full Hand Farm in Noblesville, Indiana. So before we went on break, we were talking about winter production and your mobile high tunnels and you had mentioned the the stationary high tunnels that you've got, but you've also got these caterpillar type tunnels. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, sure. So that was something um, I think in our second winter, I put one up, started playing around with it. And what it was, was it was cheap covered space for us. Um, I mean, the 20 by 50s that we put up single layer um, were fairly cheap as far as hoop houses go. Um, but for about a third of the cost, I could put up the same square footage, the same covered square footage in a Caterpillar tunnel. So how they're built is it's uh, is it's 20 foot PVC, inch and a half, schedule 40 PVC. And those have enough flex in them that that 20 foot length will bend um, on its own. And I do about 12 feet wide, 11 to 12 feet wide, which gives about an eight inch or an eight foot height at the center and did a bow spacing every four feet 
Um, and those pipes just sit down on a rebar. So then I cut rebar, two foot long rebar, hammer it in the ground till there's six or eight inches above ground and, uh, you know, insert one end of the pipe on, on that rebar and bend it over and put it on the other rebar. And then I did end up that first year, uh, didn't have a purlin and that's a little hard to keep, you know, it's almost impossible to have your bow stay in place that way. And so I put a purlin on, which really turned it into a four season structure for us. And then to hold it all together is literally baling twine. So in between each bow uh, is another piece of rebar. Um, it's the, was it half inch, three eighths, three eighths rebar that then I bent a hook into and you put those in at an angle um, in between each bow and then just run um, bailing twine back and forth, kind of like a shoelace all the way up and down that thing. And that, that tightens the plastic down and holds it together. And those we also move. Um, so instead of moving the, the, the other, the kit houses that we move, they have three slots in a line. And then these caterpillar tunnels, we move laterally. So there's three slots for those as well. But when you get ready to move, you cut the twine, pull the plastic down, um, pull one side of the hoop up, take rebar off of one side, move it over, and then you just swing the hoops around to cover the slot next to it. Yeah, and that's worked out really, really well for us. I mean, it's a lot of, it's a it's a fair amount of management, and um, because they are only 12 feet wide by 8 feet tall, that's a lot of edge space. They don't hold a lot of heat, um, but they serve perfectly well in our climate for a few different crops. Spinach will do well in there. Um, leeks over winter, no problem in there. Um, and you know, it's great to start out with, um, like I said, cheap. I mean, the first one we put up, I think was a th cost about between eight and 900 bucks. Materials have gone up quite a bit since then, but you know, so you're talking under a dollar square foot for four season production space. Wow. Um, I think now maybe I'm not sure, um, there's some companies that are putting together metal framed Caterpillar tunnels for probably about the same cost as I could source these materials now. But, uh, you know, PVC has a half-life of whatever, a million years. So right. <laughs> now I'm, now I'm stuck with them. <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised that these are sturdy enough to put up with the snow. Cause you guys have had quite a bit of snow down there this year, haven't you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And we've had a lot. I mean, was that three winters ago, you know, there's four feet that running down the sides of these caterpillar tunnels. And I, I haven't ever removed it from the side. I think that part of the way that they stand up to um, snow and then big winds, storms like that is almost like the difference between a big old oak tree and a willow tree that they have that flex built in and they can, you know, I mean, I've been in there when it feels like that thing's going to blow over, but it's almost like that flex in the pipe, um, allows it to take those, those heavy, um, weather events and kind of pop back up into place. How are you ventilating those? Yeah. So that's manual. That's raising and lowering sides. Um, and just, I, I put a clamp on a PVC on the pipe on the bow to hold the plastic up. Um, and again, it's kind of picking crops that can take it in there. Spinach leaks. Um, yeah. yeah, kale can take it in there and we are kind of moving away because of all the edge space. They don't hold heat real well. Um, and we're putting up some bigger tunnels for this winter production. 
we are kind of moving towards using those more as like a early winter, um, pull it out, clean it out, and then reseed for the early spring. So we're not necessarily carrying over through the deep winter in there. Um, the other thing that I've done with those um, that can be kind of hard is getting in and out of them. A lot of the designs you see are just uh, what they call like a bread basket at the end to secure the plastic, which is a T-post at an angle, maybe eight or 10 feet off the end. And you kind of bring all that plastic down to a, to a bunch and uh, wrap a ratchet strap around it and ratchet strap it tight. And then at our door end, what I've done was put a, um, again, T-posts um, door width you know, a couple three feet apart and, uh, strapped two by four to it, put wiggle wire on there and, uh, just wiggle wired in an end wall. And then those two by fours are, uh, strapped to the bows with some metal strapping. And so that lets me get in and out of the end easy. Low tack, but, but giving you the access that makes it so you can actually get in and do the work. Yep. Yep. You or Genesis mentioned earlier that you have had a full-time employee on the farm for the last three years with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many employees do you guys have over the course of the year? So currently we have one full-time year round employee um, who, like we said, is she's entering her third full season with us. Um, and she has been really critical to our success in the last couple of years. So we're really grateful to have had her with us consistently and um, for another year and potentially more, uh, well, hopefully. Um, And then we also have one more full-time seasonal person who will come on actually, I think in about two weeks, we bring on our next full-time person who will be with us from um, early April until Christmas. Um, And then we are also gonna have one part-time person Year round. Year round. Yeah. I guess now starting year round. Yeah. So -hmm. we have Andrea who's been with us. She's our full time, full season. And then we have another person who's going to be returning. She was full time with us last year, full time seasonal. And she's going to be moving to part time year round. And then we'll bring on one more full time seasonal, like April to December for this year. And then also hopefully some childcare, which will free up my labor. So Eli and I kind of like to think of ourselves as like one and a half. people, one and a half farmers on the farm, um, between the farm and, and kids. Um, so then a babysitter, I guess, I feel like that kind of counts in, in the employee <laughs> section is childcare, yeah. uh, to free up, to free up, uh, one of us or to free up. Yeah. To free up that extra labor from us. And you guys live on the farm. We do. Yeah. We live on the farm. Which is great because, you know, it works right out the back door, but it's also hard because works right out the back door. Right. right. <laughs> but I think in some ways it certainly makes the childcare easier. Oh, big, big time. Guy. Yeah. I mean, our boys three, three and a half, and he spends a lot of time out with us and out with the crew. And, um, you know, we're set back from the road. He has a lot of freedom. He can come and find us where we're at. And, um, so we get a lot of work done with the kids. And it is nice the way that you guys are looking at a map of your farm set back from the road so far that, that the kid, you, you really can let a kid roam in that sort of situation. Okay. And yeah, and it wasn't necessarily something we thought when we found this place, actually one of the main things we thought was protection from drift, Uh Uh, (laughs) you know, and then of course it found its way through the one hole in the property. Um, 
getting a year round employee and keeping somebody like that employed is a pretty big step for any business. And I'm curious how you guys made that leap so early in the development of your farm. If she's been with you for three years now, you know, that you guys did that when you were still a pretty young farming operation. We did. I was going to say, and it's mostly a credit to Andrea. So we did move to employing people on the farm much faster than we um, anticipated that we would, um, mostly because uh, we got pregnant faster than we thought that we might. (laughs) And so once it became clear that we were not both going to be able to um, be fully committing ourselves 100 percent of the time to the to the farm, we realized that, you know, we needed to get help and we needed to scale and all of that. Um, So I would say that uh, the growth of our family has definitely dictated the growth of the business Um, just by necessity of, you know, children needing their basic needs met every single day. I mean, who knew? (laughs) Well, and I will, I'll jump in and say not wanting to miss them growing up as well. Right. So, I mean, when you start hiring people, your net goes down, but we quit at five. Um, you know, we have family or we have dinner together as a family every night, you know, we, um, you know, we have lunch together, we have breakfast together. I mean, it's not, um, the farm is not, we're not letting the farm eat up all our time. We're not missing, uh, this window with the kids, which has spurred the hiring, you know. And I think is also due to having a really excellent full-time person with us who is able to, um, you know, really shoulder a lot of the responsibilities. She knows a lot about the farm um, and she can really carry, she can really carry a lot of the responsibility and be a crew leader, be a harvest leader, be a pack shed leader. I mean, she, she really is able to kind of dip in and out of all and, and change her hats of management um, on the farm almost as well as, as Eli or myself. Um, and, and we just knew from the, uh, we just knew as soon as that, that we were going to have to figure out, have to figure out how to do that. And I think we built slowly, you know, it's not like we, um, started, she's gotten a raise every year and we kind of always like worked with her to, to figure out like, how's it going? What do you want to be learning about more this year? Um, and trying to just keep, keep, keep the deal as sweet as possible. Um, and I guess, you know, financially, yeah, that is a big responsibility, but we've so far we've, we've, we've figured out, we've figured out how to make it work. I feel like one of the biggest advantages of doing winter production or, or anything that you can do to seriously extend the season is that ability to keep somebody employed year round mm-hmm. or close to year round so that you don't lose them from year yeah. to year. Big time, big time. Yeah. And, you know, hiring, hiring can be a little bit of a struggle and we're, you know, we're kind of running into that. We're a little rural. We're 45 minutes north of um, Indianapolis, where a lot of the labor, uh, some of the labor that we've hired has come from, which is a lot of, you know, that's a big drive, um, depending where they live. And so, you know, keeping somebody year round is key. Andrea, I will say Andrea now lives on farm. Um, She owns a house in a town, uh, maybe half an hour from here. And, um, that drive started feeling like a lot for her and she now rents that house out. And, uh, when we bought the property, there was a, um, an old trailer on site, no, no VIN, no plates, no nothing, no story. Uh, and we gave that to her and she built a little tiny house on it and, uh, is now living on site as well. So one of the disadvantages of having somebody who sticks around for three years and works for you year round is that they do have a tendency at some point to 
move on. Mm-hmm. Have you guys thought about how you're going to manage that when that transition comes? That's a good question. I mean, that, uh, uh, that, you know, that'll be hard and we'll be okay though. I mean, she's, she's, she's been with us and it was, and it's pretty critical having her, um, through kind of the fog of, um, early parenthood. Yes. Um, (laughs) you know, and as you come out of that fog, you start to have the capacity for a little more and, uh, um, and just starting to, to look forward to that as far as how to bring in talent. I mean, we, we lucked out on having, um, such talented person kind of find us and come onto our farm. Um, and like I said, living rurally, I don't, I'm not sure that we might not have to advertise, um, nationally to try and find somebody as committed, um, as we've, as we've found. So, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, it's hard to, hard to think about replacing that. I think it's really interesting that you guys, when you started your farm, didn't jump in and start a CSA because that seems to be what most young vegetable farmers do these days Mm -hmm. when they're getting a farm off the ground. Why didn't you start a CSA? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that is a good question. Um, and we worked on a CSA farm. We, we worked on a, I mean, that was where we got trained up was on a, on a farm that was, you know, 95%, um, CSA. Um, and when we were moving back to Indianapolis, I mean, just to, to farm, you know, or to, knowing that Indianapolis was going to be our market, um, we heard pretty quickly, like, you know, visiting around to farmer's markets and kind of introducing ourselves and talking to growers who are here. Um, Indianapolis is a challenging CSA climate. We don't have the culture of CSA in Indiana the way that a lot of other states do. And I'm not sure why that is, um, but, but it just doesn't exist here. You know, we don't have that sort of deep history of CSA like like New York or Wisconsin or, um, you know, a lot of other places have. Um, in addition, so I think culturally in Indianapolis, which is a big city, it's just that people don't know about it. And, you know, if they do, then maybe they just don't care just for whatever reason. Um, but another factor of that is that, you know, the deliver home delivery services, we had a local, we had a local, uh, like grocery home delivery service that had started up maybe the year that we moved back or the year before. And so we were talking to one or two of the growers that did have a CSA at that time. And they were really saying how hard it was, like how much that competition was hurting their CSA. Um, and so we had that kind of in the back of our minds. We thought that we would get our kind of get our growing chops under us and add a CSA eventually. I mean, I think initially in the first year, we decided not to do a CSA because we were so nervous about being able to supply um, a full, rich experience to a shareholder yeah. um, as and, we were learning how to be farmers. And I'll tag on to that is that you know, working in Iowa on that farm and visiting some other farms and talking to other young growers or growers who'd been at it for decades. You know, one thing we'd heard was, yeah, a lot of young growers start out in CSA and drop the ball and put a bad taste in people's mouth. And we did not, we, we, we didn't want to be part of that. And, uh, we didn't want to commit to something that we weren't going to be able to follow through on. And so the CSA was maybe in our business plan for three to four years down the lo- down the road, but we didn't want to make the commitment, um, before we had at least one leg underneath us. 
And so, but by then, by the time we got three or four years down the road, I mean, the CSA climate, I think, is still a little bit challenging um, here. And the restaurant demand was way higher than we thought it was going to be. We kind of figured we would do farmer's market and that would be an important you know, avenue of revenue for us. Um, but I think we really underestimated, like in writing our business plan and kind of imagining how we were going to make a living, we really underestimated what what kind of, um, yeah, just what kind of business we were going to be able to do with restaurants. And and that just picked up, you know, that just took off. And, and so by the time we had been growing for three or four years, you know, we had established market and we were starting to have restaurants that we'd worked with every year. I started, um, I mean, I've actually never called a restaurant to see if they want my produce. We field calls in, I mean, every year about this year, you know, they, they, they call me <laughs> and, so, and that's been, it's been like that since the beginning. So we've just kind of gone with it, which is partly why I don't have a website. I mean, you were, we were talking about that before we started recording, you were like, you guys don't even have a website. And it's, and it's because we haven't really had to, we haven't really had to work very hard at marketing, you know, for better or for worse. That's, that's not a, that's not a skill set that we've really had to put a lot of energy into so far. I'm not saying that that couldn't change. I mean, that could very well change, but, but so far we haven't needed to. So tell me a little bit more about how you do your restaurant sales, like on a weekly basis, how are you managing getting the information out to your customers about what you have available and getting those orders back in and then getting that stuff packed up and delivered. Sure. Um, so usually about, well, early May is when we start picking up. I usually send out a price sheet for the year and kind of a welcome, hello, it's a new season um, email to the chefs that we have worked with in the past. Um, coming up now, mid-April, I'll try and send that email. Um, and so that goes out mid-April and I kind of make sure everybody's cell phone numbers are still the same, let them know sort of how things are looking to get started in the spring. Um, and once we're up, and, and that's pretty much the only email that I send. Um, once we get up and going um, for the season, everything is by text message. Um, so we do a field walk on um, you know Sunday afternoon or early Monday morning um, and we kind of make our, I guess, fresh sheet as well what you would call it, get our list of what we have available. Um, and so Monday morning by, you know, I'd like to have the list out no later than 10 AM I'm sending chefs, uh, I'm sending them a text message that says, Hey, um, here's what we have for the week. You know, I'll try and include a little something about the farm just so that there's a little bit of a, they understand what's going on or, um, you know, crops that are coming on or whatever, but just like, you know, a nice friendly hello. And, and then a list of what we have available. And I like for chefs to get back to me by Monday night. I usually say like Tuesday midday is the absolute deadline, but ideally we'd like to have our orders in by Monday evening. Um, those get compiled. They, uh, we have a big whiteboard in our pack shed that um, down the left side has, it's like a magnetic whiteboard. And so, you know, you can get this little magnetic like tape. And so you can, you know, use a dry erase marker and write the name of the restaurant on it because it changes from week to week who's ordering. And so it's just a big grid. And so along the left-hand side, we have our restaurants that have ordered in the order. And like I put them up there in the the order in which the orders come in so that if we end up running shy on something, we start from the top and work down to the bottom. And then across the top of the grid is the crops that were included on the list. And so on that board in the grid, you know, you just line up, you have like, okay, Bluebeard ordered, 
you know, five pounds of spinach and 20 pounds of carrots and, you know, a box of heirloom tomatoes. And so their specific order goes in that grid mark. And then down at the bottom, we just do a, a tally of the total harvest quantities. So that's all ready to go on Tuesday morning when we have our full crew here. And so that list gets translated to a harvest list, another whiteboard that's got, you know, each field where the crop is located and the total harvest quantity that we need. And so the crew comes in, they see that total harvest list, um, you know, they're off to the races, um, getting our total quantities, all that stuff comes back in Tuesday morning, mostly. Um, and then we spend Tuesday afternoon washing and packing. And so once, once the total crop is, or the total harvest is washed, then there's somebody, there's somebody on the crew who's looking at that board and breaking things down by specific order going into crates that are labeled and like each restaurant has a stack of crates in the cooler um, and those get organized in the cooler in the order like in the delivery order if that makes sense so that then when we're loading the van um, for deliveries on Wednesday afternoon things can you know you're not shuffling a bunch of stuff around it's like okay the the last restaurant delivery is going in the van first and then you just like work your way around clockwise or counterclockwise or however it is organized. So it's Tuesday and then Wednesday morning too is also usually a little bit of, um, you know, if late order, I mean, late orders always come in. So there's also Wednesday morning to kind of finish up or get little bits of this or that. And then, um, and then restaurants go out the door Wednesday afternoon and we feel pretty lucky. So we're, we're trying to leave the farm by noon or one o'clock. And I mean, we're sometimes doing 18 or 20 drops and we can be door to door, like leaving the farm and home to the farm in about four or four and a half hours, oh, wow. which feels feels pretty efficient. Yeah. Um, that's really yeah. great. I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, that's one of those real advantages of being 45 minutes from your marketplace. Exactly. Yeah. When we were looking for property, I mean, we had drawn, we started off, we drew a 50 mile circle around Indianapolis, knowing that Indy was going to be our market. Um, and then we drove 50 miles out and realized that that's, that can be really far. <laughs> and we tightened that circle up. Um, and it, and it matters you know, the size of the road that you're close to. I mean, you can be 20 miles from town, but 20 miles from the interstate and it take twice as long as being 40 miles from town, but 10 minutes from the interstate. I mean, that was something that we looked at when we were looking for property was, was how close can we be without competing with development prices? I will say also to tag on to, cause it kind of ties into the restaurant stuff. Um, I have, I mean, I worked, I've worked in restaurants since I was 16 and that was, um, that was also part of needing a property that was close enough to town because I kept my restaurant job, um, until actually the imminent. And yeah, I kept my restaurant job until my son was born. Um, and so, you know, farm work by day, restaurant by night. Um, but that also really helped. I think that has helped us develop our restaurant business as well. So I was working in a high-end restaurant in Indianapolis um, as we were getting the farm off the ground. That's what capitalized a lot of it um, was tip money from working at a fine dining restaurant. But what that also did was really, you know, it, it, it introduced us, it introduced me to the chef community in Indianapolis, which is really similar to the farm community in Indiana in that it's very small, but very high quality. And so it's, you know, birds of a feather 
find each other very easily in these in these states that um, where what we're doing is is maybe more common in other places. But I think it it can be easier to connect with your people in a place where there's not as much of it going on. And so that's the same case in the restaurant scene where once we kind of got started, we, we first started selling to the restaurant that I was working at. Um, and then you know, and then we're just kind of started getting out and people were like, oh, you wait tables here, but you also have a farm. Like, cool. Can I get on your list? You know? And that was really helpful to building our, that was an unintended consequence of having the night job to fund the startup of the farm. And that also gave, um, it gave us a different kind of relationship with the chef that Genesis was working for. Um, he was, uh, very candid in telling us, uh, how he liked our crops or did not like the crop. Um, and it also, you know, it kind of gave us an idea of how this stuff was getting used, which, um, is really important. Uh, and we'll, you know, I'll ask that sometimes of chefs, you know, they say they want something. It's like, okay, well, how is this being cooked? Which will directly relate to how we're harvesting it. Um, and or processing it really having an understanding of that finished product, um, lets you know a good place to start. When you were talking about the deliveries, you mentioned that you were organizing things in crates in the cooler for those deliveries. Mm -hmm. Are you delivering in crates? No, we're, uh, it's bagged up. Um, it's mostly just in plastic bags. We've stayed away from the wax boxes. Um, I, I guess mostly as a cost thing, um, you know, to, to try to keep the cost down. Um, and so yeah, because our restaurants, sorry to interrupt, but our restaurants don't save, they won't save them for us. They're like too busy. They don't want to save our wax boxes. So, yeah. So the, you know, they're, it's all, it's all bagged up, um, and then put in crates, just to keep anything from getting smushed and keep it organized. It is a little bit of a pain. Um, you know, it would be nice to just wheel a dolly load of wax boxes in and drop. Um, but uh, so far it's worked for us. So are you guys doing standard packs for the restaurants? I mean, do you offer carrots in like, you know, you can order five pounds, 10 pounds or 15 pounds, or is it more just like, you know, how many carrots do you guys want this week? Yeah, it's the latter. It's like, how many carrots do you want this week? And actually just this year, which, which can be, it's, it's both nice and annoying. Um, it's nice because we don't always have the production. It doesn't always feel like we just have endless supply of our weekly list to offer these restaurants. So if somebody wants three pounds of carrots, you know, then that might mean that somebody who wants 20 pounds of carrots might actually get their full order. Like some of these orders are getting filled very tightly or we're pinching pounds here and there to give everybody most of what they want, but not the full order of what they want. And then it's a flurry of text messages to let everybody know. Um, it, it can be the managing the details of that can be a little bit um, hectic on delivery day. Um, but, but it works, it works for us. And I think it works for our chefs. I mean, I think our chefs like having that kind of flexibility we may, and we haven't really had a big problem with, um, you know, teeny tiny orders. Just this last year, it kind of popped up enough times that we were like, mm, I don't really think a $10 order is really worth it to make a stop. So part of this year's um, email kind of welcome to the season email, I think is going to be instituting a minimum order, which we haven't ever done before. But I do think that makes sense moving forward. And how many times a week are you taking orders and delivering to your restaurants? Once. 
Um, we did, uh, and so, you know, take orders Monday, deliver Wednesday, because then the rest of our week is focused on getting market harvested, packed up and out the door. Um, we did, uh, um, a twice a week delivery for one season, maybe four years ago. And it was just, it was just too much to try and get market out the door as well. Um, and I mean, there is, there's a lot of interest in a twice a week delivery, right? Because then they don't have to have the storage. They get that bump later in the week for the weekend rush. Um, but we've just stuck at the once a week. Um, so as, because we don't want to cut market off, right? We don't want to put, or we don't want to compromise our market. We want to serve both outlets equally well. We don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. Right. Right. And then do you, you mentioned that you're not reaching out to restaurants to to market to them, that you have restaurants coming to you. Are you screening those restaurants and deciding which ones you're going to take on? Or is it pretty much anybody that calls can order product from full hand farm? Um, almost, but not really. I mean, I guess we screen in the sense that we have right now, we have a really streamlined delivery route. I mean, it's just about kind of the nature of how the city has set up and, and how these restaurants have, um, how these restaurants are distributed throughout the city in that right now, um, you know, we head into town, we start, you know, in a little neighborhood, just, just South of downtown. And then there's a main artery that we're taking five miles. You know, it's, it's probably no eight miles. It's probably eight miles from downtown up to our last stop, but we're not veering more than four blocks in either direction from that main artery right now. Um, and so we have been picky in the sense of if somebody's calling and they're 20 minutes on the other side of town on the beltway, we're probably not going to add that delivery. Um, um, just because it's so far outside of the of our very streamlined delivery route right now, just by the graces of how these restaurants are have peppered themselves throughout the city. Um, so that's really the only screening that we're doing right now is that we're, we're hesitant to take on to take on anything that's going to add, you know, 40 minutes to our to our route for a for, you know, a, a minimal um, bump in, in revenue. All right, with that, we're going to turn here to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. Today's lightning round is brought to you by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help your farm automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from the pack house to your customer's doorstep. Eli, what's your favorite tool on the farm? That is a good question. There's a lot. Um, you know, I knew we kind of knew this lightning round was coming, uh, being listeners of the show. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, maybe our movable tunnels, kind of being able to play with those. Um, you know, when we brought a flame weeder in on the farm, that was kind of a game changer. But probably the most useful to me is our crop plan. 
Um, we've done a really good job over the years of keeping pretty meticulous records um, on plant dates, harvest dates, quantities, and it's all in an Excel spreadsheet. And so we do all our thinking, you know, around Christmas, New Year's, um, early January and kind of plan out the whole season and get that all mapped out and, uh, and dealt with. So then, you know, as spring hits and the season starts, then we have it all right there in front of us to change when it rains and, (laughs) you know, um, but, uh, I'd say that's probably our most, my most useful tool on the farm. Genesis, do you have a favorite tool on the farm? Um, yes. Before I had kids, I think it was the wheel hoe. Uh, I love just like the rhythm of it and, you know, the efficiency of it. Um, but since I've had kids, I think that my favorite tool on the farm is the long range baby monitor. (laughs) (laughs) And that's actually how we've vetted monitors. You know, you pour over the, the, uh, the megahertz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of the antenna. That's the primary feature for you guys. And I've like still that. gone through like five of them because I put them in my back pocket and snapped the antenna, but it's a useful tool. And worth the replacement cost. Exactly. Exactly. And I figure it's a business expense. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Genesis, what would surprise people about you? What do you think, Eli? Oh, I don't know. You're, uh, your ability to throw down it on whatever, you know, whether it be um, pulling a rear tire off the tractor or, you know, cold calling uh, uh, markets or farmers, um, different farms to go visit. I don't know. I don't know if that's a very good answer. I actually love that answer. And that's and and it's funny because you say that that's what would surprise people. But it's also like, you know, when I met you guys, I don't know how many years ago in Indianapolis at the Indiana small farms conference. That was totally the impression that I had. (laughs) Genesis, what's Eli's farming superpower? I think Eli's farming superpower is um, his ability to be good naturedly steadfast. Um, He is, Eli is steady. Um, He is focused and he is in a good mood all the while. Um, and it's just, I think it's, it's a really wonderful quality that, that keeps our farm humming along. Um, given, given lots of surprises that get thrown our way season in and season out. Genesis, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know, knowing what I know now, I think I would go back in time and tell my beginning farmer self to work on a four season farm before we started a four season farm. Um, there's a lot of value in learning all the lessons yourself. Um, but I think in another sense, there's no need to, to reinvent the wheel. So yeah, I think, I think I would tell my beginning farmer self to, to work on another four season farm, or maybe just work on at least one other farming operation before we started our own. And Eli, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know, I put some thought into this one as well, and it's, um, it's I, I might have to say something that was told to my beginning farmer self and that I continue, continually do still tell myself uh, we visited a farm in Iowa. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, Small Potatoes Farm was the name of it. And he said, you know, if you can't manage one acre well, how are you going to manage two or three or 23? And so 
um, that's kind of how uh, we've metered our growth, right? We, you, you manage one acre, figure it out, bump up a little bit. You only bump up as, as much as you're um, comfortable, right? You stretch yourself just as far as you think you can. And I still have to listen. I still have to listen <laughs> to that in the back of my head. Eli and Genesis, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Sure. Thanks for uh, thanks for reaching out. And thanks for all the work you've done, Chris. I mean, uh, like I said, we've heard you talk a lot throughout the years um, and uh, you're a, a great resource um, for all of us. Thank you. Yeah, Eli. thank you. We really appreciate the invitation. All right. So wrapping these up here, I'll say again that this is episode 167 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for full hand. That's F-U-L-L-H-A-N-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. And speaking of help, I'd like to start a tractor today in thanks to Teddy Bulkus and Delaney Trusty for their support of the show through the Patreon website where their patrons who have given a certain dollar amount every month and pledge their support for the show into the future. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>